When we look at successful businesses, most of them have one common theme, and that is incredible culture within that business. When we look at Apple, for an example, or Facebook, they all have incredible cultures built by incredible managers and leaders. But how do you instill a great culture within your business? Well, that is where David comes in. David Potter, our next guest, holds an MBA and a PhD specializing in cultural change within companies or organizations. He is the person that is sent to these companies in order to sort out their culture and push them to the next level. He founded and established the Cultural Change Organization, which can be found in the link below, wherever you are watching this or listening to this. And he also has 25 years experience in senior management. He talks a lot about conscious leadership and how you can become more conscious as a leader and help people follow you to that next level. This is the Into the Mind podcast, and my name is Harrison Brown. If you're watching or listening, I hope this helps. David, thank you <laughs> so much for coming on. Honestly, yeah. I think that the way that we sort of connected and the glowing results that my sister gave you when you were teaching her are, they, they, they speak volume, volumes and the way that my sister said that you were able to engage the whole class when, when, when giving lectures is really absolutely incredible. And it's something, it's a skill that people, people are kind of losing nowadays, I think. And I think it might be due to social media, lack of interaction, but whatever it is, you're here and you can, you can help get that back. So where did this begin for you and, and how did you get into leadership and cultural change? Wow. Well, for, for, first of all, it's really nice to be here <laughs> with, with yourself, Harrison. As far as your sister's concerned, I'd just like to revisit that uh, lovely introduction. Mm. She was one of my students on a course called The Art of Influencing, which is delivered by Adam Smith Business School, University of Glasgow. And they asked me to come in and, and deliver the course. Mm. Um, and it's a course that historically had been delivered in the past, and then they, they, they brought it back up again. Um, I think the key thing when it comes to giving lectures is not to give a lecture, right? Mm. Is that for me, my philosophy is, uh, okay, this is a lovely opportunity for me to build rapport with these students, right? And <clears throat> to build a kind of dialogue with them. And dialogue being kind of like uh, the art of thinking together, right? Mm. So that we're all in this space for two hours together, engaging with each other <clears throat> intellectually to try and, uh, get some sort of practical accomplishment from that process. Mm -hmm. Where did it all begin? <clears throat> I think it began when I was about six years of age, right? And uh, I wasn't very good at primary school. I kept getting into trouble, right? Mm -hmm. uh, a bit of an attention seeker. But the one thing I was very good at um, is I, I was very good at reading stories from books. Mm -hmm. So the teacher used to say, would somebody like to stand up and recite a couple of paragraphs from this book? And I would say, can I do it? Can I do it, right? Because <laughs> it was a bit of a show off, right? Mm -hmm. But actually, I, I learned that I <clears throat> enjoyed speaking mm -hmm. and I enjoyed communicating. Uh, I ended up going into the hospitality business when I left school. Mm -hmm. And uh, you'll know from the hospitality business that a big part of that is building and maintaining rapport with customers. And I worked in the service side of the hospitality business. So I worked in management, first of all, getting involved in running restaurants and then moving into large scale hospitality event companies. Mm. Um, 
in Glasgow places that you'll recognise, such as the Glasgow Royal Concert Hall, uh, etc. And I was fascinated, absolutely fascinated, about the way that some managers enabled what we call leadership mm. in such a manner that people performed their jobs to a very, very high standard and to a very, very consistent standard. Whereas, unfortunately, there were other examples where that didn't seem to happen, right? Where um, the men and women in certain other managers' teams, they, they seemed to be connected at some kind of level, but there was something getting in the way of them being their very best version of themselves, for themselves, for their teams and for their organisations. So, cut a long story short, I got an opportunity to do an MBA at Strathclyde mm -hmm. University. Loved it. And the one elective on the course that really got my attention was leading cultural change, managing mm -hmm. culture. So, I signed up for a PhD, went five years doing a part-time PhD while simultaneously working in management, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, and in my PhD, I was fascinated by the way in which corporate management teams, through time... Uh, create a form of groupthink or corporate culture that either enables the success of that organisation or in some cases can hinder the success of that organisation. Hmm. So I got into all that. Coming out the end of that, um, I got to around about my mid-40s and the one area that I felt was still missing in terms of my knowledge base was what we call the black box. And the black box is basically... Uh, that depository of ideas that explains the way in which human beings cultivate and develop what we call their intra-personnel skills mm -hmm. and their inter-personnel skills. The former being how David gets on with David, right? Mm -hmm. How I manage my internal identity, my beliefs, my values, my emotional states, my behavioral choices. And then, of course, how that leaks out and influences my interpersonal skills, the way in which I interpersonally engage with Harrison and with Harrison's team yeah. and how that then generates social results, right? Yeah. And so I went on another period of study and I got involved in the world of coaching, studying coaching, also studying in Glasgow with exceptional trainers who introduced me to the world of neuro-linguistic programming or NLP. Mm -hmm. And then I decided to go to America and I studied with world-class trainers again at the University of California, Santa Cruz, who were operating a training business out of the university campus. And they introduced me to the training aspects of uh, what we call NLP, but a much more advanced level. Um, and then I completed that with a diploma in coaching and mentoring, set up the cultural change company as a provider of leadership training and uh, uh, soft skills development training. Mm -hmm. And that's kind of how it started and that's where we are now. That is fascinating. So you've had a really long uh, career so far, a really successful yeah, career so far. Yeah. How would you, if, if you were to walk into a business tomorrow, yeah, how would you instill that positive culture to begin with? In terms, as a consultant trainer, yeah. if I was to come to your business, for example. Yeah. Uh, well, first of all, I would want to try and understand what it is you think needs to be changed. So let's say, for an example, you've got um, a, a toxic work culture. Aye. Um, let, let's say that you've got a toxic work culture yeah. and 20% of the team are doing 80% of the work. Okay. Um, they're all 
very good friends however maybe some of them can't have those tough conversations in order to say listen we're doing most of the work you need to come on sure get get motivated here yeah so you're into the world of psychological safety there mm. right and you're into the world of <clears throat> team members being able to share their experiences in a way that is not threatening to their sense of self mm. right or there's no fear that they're going to be punished mm. or they're going to be victimized so the, the key thing in that set of dynamics is to say, okay, on a scale of one to ten, how psychologically safe do they do the um do do the the people in this organization feel mm. about speaking up and about giving voice to power and about expressing their concerns? Uh, so you would have to do some research into that to 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 tie that down, yeah. So you think that having psychological feeling psychologically unsafe. Yes impacts your your voice within that uh, whatever the work culture might be yeah well, a lack of psychological safety acts as a catalyst for reinforcing and maintaining the toxic culture basically right, right? okay so as long as that's there lack of mm. then the toxic culture will flourish if we look at uh, there's been a lot of media attention obviously given to organizations in the media right mm -hmm. where things haven't been working and psychologically safety or lack of is consistently getting cited as a major problem mm -hmm. the issue is trying to get a handle on exactly what psychological safety is and what it's not mm -hmm. and how to create it how to recognize it when it's not there and mm -hmm. how to recognize it when it is there but the main thing is to remember in the organization harrison is that a lack of psychological safety is a product of um, a lack of leadership hmm. okay that's interesting i'm trying yeah. to get my, my head around yeah. that one so if if i was to if you a manager was to come to you for coaching yeah and say that they had an issue with a member of the team yeah. that is beginning to become disengaged yeah. shall, we, shall we say yeah how would you re-engage that member of the team oh that's that's a big question isn't it right mm. so are we talking about on a one so there's one person in a team of how many uh let's say five people five people yeah I, um how would you deal with that i think you have to have dialogue mm -hmm. between yourself and that individual there has to be an openness and a transparency of dialogue but for that to happen you have to understand why that person is disengaged because disengaged is it's an interesting subject right because we we have our research uh, instrument called the C's assessment which basically mm. means staff engagement assessment survey right okay. where uh, we um, measure engagement on multiple levels so is the individual disengaged with their task their yeah. job yeah. or are they disengaged with their colleagues or are they disengaged with their line manager okay. or are they disengaged with the mission or the vision or the ambition of the business where are they disengaged? That's the first thing we need to understand. So, so you, you need to figure out exactly why or where. Where and disengaged. why? So, let's say um, I'm just giving examples here, yeah. but we we have a person coming into uh, Drew. I'm going to use you as an example. Uh, we have a, <laughs> a, a person coming in to do editing. Yeah. Uh, and all of a sudden, their work rate slows. They seem to not really care about what they're yeah. doing anymore. Um, and it's it's impacting their work. How would you identify maybe what is causing that? Well, I, I would use, there's a technique we developed called MASIP, 
which mm. might be useful for you. Massive N-A-C-C-I-P. And it's simply asking the person, look, you know, on a scale of one to 10, when you get out of your bed in the morning to come mm. into work here with us, how motivated do you feel? Mm. Ask them that question. And then ask them the second question, um, in terms of uh, being attentive to your needs and the needs of your employer and your team mm. on a scale of one to 10, how attentive do you think you are? Okay, uh, and then you might say when you go home at night on a scale of one to ten, how creative was your experience today for you? Mm. And then you ask them another question on a scale of one to ten. How connected did you feel with the work, with the people you are working with? And then you go into the I. How inspired do you feel when you come in here to work with our organization and our team? Okay, and then finally the P is when you look at your job and you look at your relationship with your work and with us as an organization, on a scale of one to 10, how would you rate your potential for personal growth? And the chances are they've never been asked those questions, mm -hmm. right? And you'd be amazed when you open that door to that kind of dialogue, what's gonna come forth, mm -hmm. right? And sometimes you're gonna get answers as a leader that you were not prepared for that actually, a lot of the disengagement can come from the way that person's interpreting the leadership style within the organization, and that's not uncommon. Mm. But you need techniques, and you need to engage in dialogue uh, and transparency of dialogue. Yeah, you're right. I, I do think that anything in life comes down to having a certain toolkit yeah. in, in your mind. Yeah. And I think that what people don't understand is sometimes when they see the polished finished article it's a bit like a swan you've yeah. got this beautiful graceful swan yeah, flowing yeah. across the water yeah underneath you just see the legs pedaling. yeah yeah yeah, yeah. um yeah. <laughs> so, so people need to understand that just because they might see a polished finished article it's not always been that way correct you know there has been tough times yeah um, you know for an example i'll use this podcast as an example it is quite polished yes however i've had five years filming drew's had seven years yes seven years yes. so it's taken a while to get to that level yes when managing someone that's that's disengaged how do you think you could um once you've identified why they're disengaged yes how do you think that you could flick that switch and begin to re-engage them yes so it starts with a question mm. okay so let's say it was you that was disengaged hypothetically right mm. uh and uh your line manager would have to ask you this question so we've mm. went through the mass up we went through the dialogue we understand what's going on and what the dynamics are and the question is so harrison what has to be different for you in here for you to change um i need flexible working hours okay okay so the question is am i prepared to make that available to you mm. okay uh is there any reason why i can't do that and and what happens if you do that uh -huh. but the person remains uh disengaged i think there comes a point in that relationship and i, I quite like this saying it sounds a bit cold is mm. uh give the person the opportunity to change give them all the tools that they need to change be fair provide them with sources of procedural justice mm. uh be a, a reasonable leader right but fundamentally at the end of the day if that person refuses to change then change the person okay no that that makes sense yeah. so you can you can pull out all the yeah. The stops and have that toolkit available. Yeah. But if that person isn't ready to pick the tools up, yeah. 
then it, it, there might need a change in their life. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I think it's a, it's a form of conscious leadership with compassion, but mm. also with a practical edge and a pragmatic edge. At the end of the day, you're running a business, mm. right? And you've got shareholders. Mm. Uh, and, and, and ironically, the disengaged person is a shareholder in mm. the sense that they have a stake in that business. Mm. Um, but fundamentally, if, if, they, if they refuse... See, there's a, there's a lovely saying in coaching is that resistance is often a sign of weak rapport, mm. right? So the question is, if this person keeps resisting you, right, in terms of your efforts to connect with them and build an engaged relationship with them, mm. um, they're resisting you, mm. basically, right? And there comes a point where you run out of resources, because they're just too good at resisting you. Yeah. Uh, they've decided they're going to keep resisting you, then it, then you, you have to deal with that uh, using the the bureaucracy of the personnel department. Mm. Yeah. And you used God a really... the personnel department, incidentally. <laughs> you used a really interesting phrase there. You said conscious leadership. Yeah. I, for, for the viewers and listeners, what exactly do you mean by that? Well, the thing about academia, first of all, I'm a pracademic. Mm. All right. So a pracademic is a practically informed academic, right? Mm. So I come from a world of practice, but I love theory as well because I think it's Kurt, I think it was Kurt Lewin once said, you know, there's nothing more practical than a good theory if it helps society do something good within society, right? Okay. Mm. So conscious leadership will have multiple definitions depending on which body of literature you go to. Mm -hmm. So my take on conscious leadership is conscious leadership is about leading are attempting to lead or to offer leadership with a sense of heightened conscious awareness mm -hmm. about yourself, right? So what I mean by that is this, if I've got John or Sharon who are feeling kind of disengaged and I can't get to the bottom of it with them, right? Mm -hmm. And they work in my team. Conscious leadership is about David saying to himself, okay, when John or Sharon come into, come into my space and I'm with them, what kind of emotional state am I in? Mm. How is that emotion uh, affecting my behavior around them? Mm. What are the thinking patterns that are driving the emotional states? And by thinking patterns, I mean, how am I making sense of these two individuals? How am I framing them in terms of their identities? How is that then affecting my emotions, my behavioral strategies? And how is that then affecting their responses to me? So in essence, conscious leadership's about that. Mm. It's also about privilege and rapport mm. above everything else when you're dealing with the men and women in your team, creating a leadership service staff culture where rapport becomes a distinctive uh, uh, competency within yep. that culture. It's also about privilege and psychological safety within your culture. Yeah. Clearly, it's about privilege and reflexivity in your leadership team, critical reflexivity. Uh, and I make a distinction between reflection and reflexivity mm. in my understanding of the terms. So reflection is kind of like, so hey, Harrison, how was your management seminar today? And you'll give me a kind of two-minute blurb on it, right? Mm -hmm. And if I say to you, hey, Harrison, can you, can you do me a favor? Can you identify what it was in the management seminar today? that in relation to your belief system really worked for you or really mm -hmm. didn't work for you, that's reflexivity because that's inviting you to go into a much deeper structure of your subjective experience. Mm -hmm. So reflexivity is really important. And the fourth element is, of course, emotion, emotional intelligence. Mm -hmm. As a leader, uh, emotionally, how, how open am I to the feedback of my colleagues? 
about my leadership style? Can mm. I handle it? So that's what conscious leadership's all about. Okay, and, and what, <laughs> what, no, no, it's really interesting. Yeah. I think you inviting through a question people to dive a little bit deeper into yes. what actually makes them tick. Yes. And, and what, it makes people draw out more of a more of them really yes and i think that's really interesting and actually i've written that down to use in my own management yeah <laughs> um, yeah when when we look at conscious leaders what do you think the traits are for a conscious leader uh, in terms of if you were to meet someone in the street and you were to say you're a conscious leader why do you think that they would be that does that make sense yeah i think one of the most prominent traits is empathy hmm. right is the ability to take uh what uh, in NLP terms we call um, the second perceptual position to step into another person's shoes and to try and get a feel for how they feel how they perceive the situation what their beliefs are what their values are what the positive intention is behind their disengagement right mm. I think empathy is is a, is a, is a key characteristic of um, conscious leadership I'd say also um and this sounds really cliched, right? Mm. But but actually caring about people. Yeah. Because I think you can be a leader within because it's interesting that there is an argument that conscious leadership at some kind of level was born out of the idea of conscious capitalism, mm. which you're probably familiar with. So moving away from the traditional classic view of capitalism, right? Mm. To a much softer, fairer, more ethically driven capitalist model. And it looks like your generation is going down that road, for example, where mm. you're wanting to see there's nothing wrong with making money, right? Everybody, mm. you can make money, but you need to think about how you're going to make money and the impact on wider society through your efforts to make money, right? Mm. And how, as a capitalist, when you set up a business, you're going to create a really fulfilling environment for the stakeholders that are going to be engaged with that business. Mm. So conscious leadership, I think, comes out of that model. Right, so I think I do think that you can be compassionate, you can have empathy, you can be quite a caring person, uh, and these are all traits of conscious leadership. But you can also be very pragmatic, and you can also make the tough decisions when you know they need to be made. I don't see any conflict with that. For sure, and I think yeah. what you said about empathy there really resonated. Yeah, I think that let's say you have a, a member of the team that is um, slightly they're behind their target and yeah. for three months in a row the trend is yeah. that they're not performing yeah if you have a manager that goes in there and says why are you behind target this is a disgrace you yeah. need to get on board yeah that person is automatically disengaged yeah, absolutely whereas if you sat the person down got them a coffee and said listen i'm really worried about you yeah what is going on how can i help yes exactly all of a sudden you've totally switched that dynamic yes and and, and you genuinely and it's not out of a place of yes. Uh, manipulation yes you actually care about that person. You do, but you also care about your shareholders. Exactly. And there's nothing wrong with that. Exactly. You yeah. care about both. And I think that people can really, especially, and I've experienced it, Yeah. Um, some managers, especially young managers, um, fall into the trap of quite aggressive. Yes. Whereas that's not the way to get uh, draw out the good in someone. No. The, the way to draw out the good in someone is to... Is to be empathetic correct understand that life's tough yeah life is tough yeah. um life's tough and, yeah. and and 
there, there's ways of drawing out the good and i think yeah. empathy is a huge part in that yeah i think human beings are basically fragile entities mm. and when we get that through including the leaders the reason that some leaders are super aggressive is often that they're occupying what we call disassociated states right mm. so they objectify staff as the other right mm. when in actual fact it should they're they're just as fragile as the staff mm. that's what often what's driving those behaviors interesting you said that yeah. looking at receiving feedback yes w w especially when i was a bit younger when yeah. i used to receive feedback yeah i used to get really angry not at other people yeah really frustrated anxious and angry with myself yeah um and i think that in part that's maybe that what you've just mentioned it's kind of i don't know why i reacted that way but but after reflecting on it it's just because i cared so much yes exactly yeah and i think people that get aggressive they should channel it into something else it's just because they care aggression yes. isn't necessarily a bad thing no it's not absolutely not no uh, and yeah they should maybe channel it into a different avenue yeah if you had a team member that was showing those kind of traits of maybe aggression yeah. maybe maybe passing staff off as the others as yeah. you said yeah how would you fix that as a leader coaching 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 yeah i'd have a mentoring coach well the thing about mentoring is is i could offer myself up as a mentor to you for example right mm. but if you don't want me as a mentor i can't be your mentor right mm. and this is one of the flaws in a lot of programs within the workplace is you're assigned a mentor often right you need to pick uh, one you need to pick one you need to, it's a very personal thing a mentoring relationship and the second thing is the same thing applies with coaching, right? You have to be open to coaching. Mm -hmm. The idea that uh, you bring me in and you give me 30 people and you say, hey, David, go and coach these people. If they don't really want to be coached, you know, you can't take a horse to water and make a drink, right? So you've got to, first of all, be able to frame this situation. But anyway, going back back to the question is, is it, I, I think it's, again, it's all about dialogue and mm -hmm. it's about how you frame that dialogue with somebody. So... I love what you just said a few minutes ago, you know, you know, okay, David, I'm really concerned about you. It's not like you, 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 you seem to be falling mm. behind on your numbers. Um, and I'm a bit concerned for a, a number of reasons. And I'm wondering if you would like to share with me why you think you're in this situation just now mm. and what I can do to help you get out of that situation. I think that's an amazing thing to do. And mm. I think that that could be often or not very transformative. And there's a technique that my sister actually actually yeah. showed me that you you taught her. What is the technique when you approach someone softly, and then you <laughs> what what was it called? Well, it's 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 I I attended a training program in in America over two years to to become an advanced trainer, uh, behavioral change trainer, and I think called NLP neuro linguistic training uh, neuro linguistic programming. I beg your pardon. And the lead trainer there is a guy called Robert Diltz. Mm. And you've got to give credit to Robert Diltz. He's a phenomenal trainer, educator, and I regard him as an awakener, which mm. is a lovely idea in management, right? But it's he he's brought that idea to, I think he's brought that idea to the world. Well, Robert introduced me to this thing called uh, giving fish and giving stretch. Mm. And this is how it works, right? So let's say you're going to do a presentation mm. to your management team at the business. And 
you've already shared with me that there could be aspects of the build-up to that presentation and its delivery that you think, I, I, I'd like to overcome certain limits and beliefs so I could be a, a much more powerful, much more effective presenter. Okay, so you do your presentation and I'm in the room, right? Mm -hmm. But I have to give you feedback. So if I give you feedback like this, hey, Harrison, um, I really enjoyed your presentation. Um, I could see that you cared very, very much about it and, and I admired that. But you've got to realise that you, you did run over time and you need to be better at managing your time. Mm -hmm. And also I felt that some of your slides, they were a bit dense with text. Mm -hmm. And sometimes people find it difficult, you know, following your narrative when they're looking at all that text. And yeah, I, th I thought you managed your nerves quite well, but you could maybe do a better job of that in future. But, you know, overall, I think you did a grand job. How would you feel? Um, probably a little bit uh, better than if it was just straight up negative, I suppose. Uh -huh. Okay. However, maybe a bit deflated. I, yeah. I don't know. Maybe yeah. a bit deflated. A bit painful. So let's try a different version, shall we? Mm. So shake off that state for me, right? Get rid of that memory, okay? So I do this. This is how you give. How you give. Uh, uh, so that would be that would be the traditional critical feedback and mm. it's coming from a good place and all the rest of it fish and stretch is about this so if you give someone fish you say so harrison really enjoyed your presentation okay mm. i could see that you really cared very very much about it and that came through in your presentation and it was quite infectious for me and i think for other people in the room right i think what you were really good at today is you are charming my friend you leak charm right mm. and it's again it's contagious right and that, that's something that we need more of in this organization mm. if i was to give you just a little bit of stretch right just so that the next time you do it you can be much more accomplished in your own mind as you go forward for that challenge is maybe get rid of some of the text okay mm. have more images human beings love pictures you know that you come from a creative background mm. and maybe just pace yourself a wee bit more right get into more of a pace and always remember that people like listening to you so you don't need to rush it and so overall um there's my takeaways thanks very much for your time we need to pause this podcast to bring to you a word from our sponsors chisholm hunter are the sponsors of the into mind podcast and without chisholm hunter we would not be sitting here today they have helped support us in a venture that is totally new to them and i think for a family business that's been around for over 165 years, that's quite incredible. Chisholm Hunter supply luxury jewellery and watches. And all of my jewellery, including this chain, these rings, this watch, are all from Chisholm Hunter. So if you're looking for something for yourself or something for a partner, head to chismhunter.co.uk. Back to the podcast. Okay, so when we think about that technique, right? So if you're delivering fish and stretch combined if you were to compare how you felt when we invited you to consider the feedback using the fish and stretch uh, techniques harrison how did it make you feel so much better i think i was physically smiling when you were saying it even though it was a it wasn't real <laughs> <laughs> yeah it was so much better yeah 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 the thing about it is some people would say well you're it's too soft an approach right mm. and and in actual fact i would refute that right mm -hmm. i think it takes discipline to reprogram your mind as a leader so that you don't use the former model of providing constructive feedback mm -hmm. and train your mind to look out for what did the individual do that they can really build on that mm -hmm. i can recognize today to build on their strengths and then how can i 
use that form of feedback to build rapport with Harrison in that moment mm. so that I can then invite him to be open to receiving a little bit of stretch about how he can actually be even better at what he does. And that's that's the power behind that technique, I feel. Yeah. yeah. I, I resonate with that totally. I think that if someone genuinely cares about what they're doing as a job, yeah, normally you don't need to tell them when they've done something wrong because they know themselves. Yes, correct. So when I, just introspectively, when I, when, when I look at um, the way that Drew and I behind the camera yeah. work together, if I do an edit or Drew does an edit and we always review each other's edits yeah, um, because two eyes are better than one. Yes. And I say, Drew, this is an incredible edit. Um, you know, you've done this right, you've done this right, you've done this right. Yeah. However, there's a little point here that I'd maybe change. Normally, Drew's already caught that. Yeah, yeah. And he's already, you know, I don't even need to tell him yeah. the negatives. Obviously, yeah. it's it's important to develop yeah. those uh, aspects that we can. Yeah. However, normally when you've got a truly engaged person Correct. in business, Correct. they will see their mistakes Correct. and they'll learn from it. Right. Uh, and and it, it, it is, it's a very interesting thing. It's a focus on the positives. Yeah. Don't focus on the negatives. Yeah, and it's not a new idea. Mm. It's been around for quite a long time, you know. It's um, the idea of focusing on strengths rather than weaknesses is a paradigm that is out there mm. in the world and uh, it's one that we can all tap into. I also think that people have a natural desire. I'm, I'm a big... Uh, um, theory why guy right in mm. terms of the work of douglas mcgregor is i believe that people naturally want to do good work people naturally want to work hard they naturally want to be part of a tribe right they really want to do that they, they but they can't do good work um unless the leadership create a culture that enables them to do good work mm. if you look at this whole trend behind psychological safety um, it, it's based on a very simple and powerful idea from the literature that, and from research. I think it was Amy Edmondson's done a lot of work in this area, mm -hmm. where that when people feel psychologically safe, they will own their mistakes. Mm. You won't need to tell them they've made a mistake. They'll yeah. say, hey, I've made a mistake. Yeah. And then they'll learn from those mistakes. But when they don't feel psychologically safe, arguably the, the opposite occurs. So the key thing for... Uh, uh, a guy like yourself who's involved in building a business is for the men and women in my team, the professionals in my team, um, to to understand where they could improve without me as a leader having to point it out to them mm. is based on creating a shared belief system, a shared value system within our own culture mm. that enables that to happen. And the, the question that I think is really interesting is, can you build such a culture with conscious awareness and intention? Or is it something that just accidentally evolves because you're just lucky to have the right type of people around? It's an interesting question. I don't think looking at that documentary I mentioned it to you before yeah. on Joe, the the, 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 the the guys that invented really vaping, they, they didn't invent it, but they, they made it mainstream. Yeah. They always had their belief system and their mission drilled into everybody. Yeah. And everybody that worked for, for that company or worked yeah. with that company had a shared vision. Yes. And I think that is imperative to Absolutely. any business yeah. because otherwise why are you there correct and i think that looking at um the, the sort of again into inter, into myself and what we're trying to create yeah. we've got very specific goals yeah and we're trying to create a really just let's take the podcast for an example yeah a really relaxed but informational um 
session of talking and, yeah. and people can really take away a lot yeah so i think that and that's our goal yeah and ha- having a clear directive and mission statement that's the word mission yeah. statement yeah is so so important yeah when people aren't engaged they kind of go the flip way and they're disengaged now you talked in your book about the disengagement epidemic yeah yeah what do you mean by that? Well, basically, we just need to look at the state the world's in, mm-hmm. right? And we look at what's been going on in Britain in the last 18 months to two years in terms of industrial action across the public sector and the private sector. Mm-hmm. We've had the National Health Service uh, virtually on its knees. Yes, I know it's been on its knees with COVID. Mm-hmm. But if you had said to me three years ago, hey, David, doctors, nurses, consultants, etc., will be on strike, I wouldn't have believed that, would yeah. you? No, not I would, at all. I wouldn't have believed it. Not at all. Uh, you've got the problems across the railways. You've got problems across higher education and, and, and further education, problems with the police. And then you've got uh, job insecurity, mm. uh, which is everywhere at the moment. I, I, would you, I don't know how you feel about that. Do you think that's a grounded reality? A hundred percent. And right. I, I think especially amongst, this is just my perspective, yeah. I suppose, but from what I can see amongst the council, yeah. amongst the NHS. Yeah. Um, I think that what's happening within the, the NHS and, and the council workers is they're being stretched so far yeah. and there's very little empathy. Yeah. And also they have no leadership because yeah. within the government, without getting political, without, yeah. within the government, they're spending you know 8 million on the cycling and they actually removed three million away from the Edinburgh Film Festival sure. because they went over budget. Yeah. As a result, the Edinburgh Film Festival yeah. crashed. Yeah. So all those employees thought, Yeah. What am I meant to do? Yeah. I think from from my perspective, when I talk about a disengagement epidemic, I'm talking about something that's on a global scale. Mm-hmm. When you look at um organizations that have when we look at research and we quote some of the research in the book right but Mm -hmm. there's tons of research out there but basically the amount of people that are passively uh, disengaged or actively disengaged is scary Mm -hmm. right the amount of people that have got no idea what the vision or the mission of the organization is let alone uh, engaged with it is 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 scary and if people don't know what your vision is or what your mission is if they don't feel psychologically safe mm. in that environment, if they're also feeling economically threatened because they don't know if they can put bread on the table in three months' time, right? Um, if they're coming into an organisation where they're finding it really difficult to express their I- ideal version of themselves, then they're going to be pretty disengaged mm. and at multiple levels. And I think that what's going to come out of what's going on in the world just now mm. is a rebirth of the way in which leadership culture will actively be formed and developed over time, way beyond my lifetime. But mm. it's going to happen. It has to happen. Why do you think people, especially in my generation, I yeah. can see it, and I, I think I know roughly the answer, but I'd like your take in this. Yeah. Why do you think people, especially amongst my generation, are so actively disengaged? Um, I think, I, I would think... That's a really, really good question. There has been research into into Generation Y, Generation Z, mm. and we know that based on research that you're looking for greater work-life balance. Mm. We know that there is a general view that the money is a means to an end, but the quality of your life beyond work is super important right? Mm. To, to, to you. We know it's a more values-driven uh, set of generations in terms of um, relating to environmentalism and social issues that are really, really important to you. Mm-hmm. Now, in a way, all of that's not new. 
And I talked about going to California to do my training with Robert Diltz and his colleagues. I mean, Santa Cruz, the Bay Area, San Francisco, birthplace of the hippie movement, right? <laughs> so if you just go back to the 60s, yeah. all right, all you know, young men and women were really, were they really that different to Generation Y and Generation Z today in terms of their liberal attitudes, their interest in the environment, caring about the world. In some ways, you could see they were more proactive if you mm. look at the demonstrations, let's say, relative to the Vietnam War and things like that, right? Mm -hmm. So I don't know. Maybe it's a rebirth of something that's came before you. Maybe it's a dissatisfaction with the way my generation has led the world that we're leaving behind for you. Mm. I think there's a lot going on there. But there's a general dissatisfaction with it, yeah. I think potentially... I don't think this is the entire reason, but social media, comparing yeah. yourself constantly to something that's not real. Absolutely. 90% of the time. Correct. Uh, and and I, as a photographer and videographer, yeah. I see the fakeness of it. Yeah. I see the highlight reel. I can see the edits. Yeah. I can see people comparing themselves. And it's terrible because young women and young men are comparing themselves to things that are not attainable. Yeah. Uh, and I think that that is part of it, but... That leads to them being disengaged. I, I believe that a lack of purpose... Yes. ...leads people to being disengaged. Yes. And I think that a business, if done right... Yes. ...and if they have a proper goal... Yes. ...can have and give people that purpose. Yes, which is exactly what conscious leadership is all about. Exactly. Yes. And I think that... Um, my advice to people that might feel disengaged yes. or like they've not got a purpose yes. is find a, something to, to strive and go towards. Yes. For me, when I first started, not within the business, but freelancing, yes. my goal was, right, I'm going to get to, um, you know, I want to do, these are my bucket shots in terms of photography. Yes. You can see them on the wall. Yes. <laughs> um, I want to get these five shots and if I get those five shots, then I can move on to the next five. Yes. And then it led to the next job and then yeah. it led to getting a bigger job with Canon yeah. and progressively you just step yourself up the ladder. But if people don't start that initial goal, th that seems to be the sticking point. Yes. And, and also organizations, perhaps there is a lack of knowledge or accessible knowledge of the type of training or workshops that you can provide for young professionals like yourself mm -hmm. so that they can start to really deeply think about what their mission is mm -hmm. or what their vision is or what their purpose is. Again, going back to the uh, the training that I was at in California with Robert Diltz and his team, they introduced us to a technique called the elevator pitch, right? Mm -hmm. And it's not the traditional version of the elevator pitch. This is a technique that they developed that you can use uh, in a workshop scenario with with management teams or uh, of, of any generation. Mm -hmm. But it basically works around this idea. I'd say things to you like, okay, in terms of your vision, Harrison, you know, and I'm your manager, right? Okay. Yeah. And this is a different mindset for management. But as a manager, I'd be saying to you, um, what is your vision? What is it that you want to see more of in the world or less of in the world? Mm. What do you want to see more of or less of in the world? And then the second question coming out of that uh, would be, uh, and, you know, in terms of your work here, how can you, through your work, support the realization of that vision? So you're trying to connect what you're doing on a day-to-day -day basis within the work with your personal vision of the world. And then they're into questions such as, it's a beautiful technique. You say, okay, so what, what, is, your, um, what is your mission, Harrison, 
in terms of lifetime learning that's going to help you contribute to realizing your vision mm. and then the next question out of that is um what is your special talent what do you think you're really really good at mm -hmm. that you can strengthen and further develop that can help you connect with your vision now running these types of workshops starts creating a culture in the organization that says vision's important mm -hmm. mission's important purpose is important talent is important and then in the elevator pitch as they developed it at nlpu they would say things like so my request from you uh, david this is from you to me mm. is for me to enable my sense of mission vision and purpose because another question is what is your purpose yeah. is in terms of the organization what can you do to help me realize these things mm -hmm. and that that provides a platform for talent management mm -hmm. right and vision building because you want to strengthen the engagement with the company vision but that it's an old cliche it needs yeah. to be aligned with the individual sense of vision and yeah. quite often a young person from generation z or y may not actually have a well-formed clear idea of their vision mm. right and they mistake vision for ambition mm -hmm. ambition is different you know what do you want to achieve personally through your career mm. so it comes back to dialogue and it comes back to knowing the right kind of questions to invite people to think about. And it comes back to having a culture, a leadership culture that values creating a space mm. within the day-to-day -day activities of the calendar year for those dialogue workshops, elevator pitch workshops, yeah. training fish and stretch workshops, call it what you like, to take place. Yeah, that, that really super helpful what you said there in terms of aligning the team's motives yeah. with the company you know what yeah. is driving them and what is driving the company yeah. and how do they align with each other instead yeah. of this is where the company wants to go if you're not on it then you get out i yeah. think that's a, that's where it becomes a bit toxic it's yeah. more listen uh, what do you want to achieve okay how yeah. can you do that with us yeah how can we help you do that yeah through us say that into the main podcast wh yeah. whatever it might be that's super super important i think you've really hit the nail on the head yeah there. yeah if you had somebody that's through this disengagement e epidemic that um, we would like to, to re-engage and you talked yeah. about the sort of methods to do that, yeah. is there a specific technique that you can use as a manager when you're talking to someone to try and gauge why they've dropped off? Yeah. Did yeah. Well, the first thing is building and maintaining and sustaining rapport. Mm. So you need to break down the acronym rapport right so first of all do i respect you mm. and do you feel respected but also do you respect me mm. right am i attentive to your needs and to your ambitions and your aspirations are you attentive to my needs as a leader right do we both see the positive aspects of this relationship and the positive intentions mm. behind each other's approach to each other right do we see the potential of this relationship for you to grow mm. and to move towards your ideal version of you and also for me to grow as a leader and for this business to grow of ours, mm. right? And do am I optimistic about the relationship, which is the O, and can we maintain a, yeah. a strong relational base? And finally, do you trust me yeah. as a leader? These elements of the acronym rapport are fundamental to achieving that end state. And then yeah. living those elements as a leader and, and making them fundamental to your conscious leadership mindset mm. 
um, is how I think how you go about this. Because let's just play a wee game here, right? Mm-hmm. If I don't respect you, do we have rapport? No. Yeah. Is there any way you're going to engage with me? Okay, let's take another one out. If you don't see any potential in our relationship, can we have rapport? No. If I don't trust you, but do you see where this is going? Yeah. No, so these sure. are multi-level critical elements. It's a bit like you know, making a nice crepe suzette when I used to be in the catering game, right? <laughs> if you take out the lemon, it ain't a crepe suzette. I don't know what it is, but there yeah. you go. Very, yeah, very good. Very good analogy there. Yeah. <laughs> Do you like crepe suzette? Yeah. Love them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I used to flumby them when I was younger. Yeah. <laughs> Do you think that bigger companies have more trouble implementing those techniques to keep people engaged? Yeah, massively so. Yeah. But the question that falls out of that is why? Why do you think it is? Uh, I think it's the mindset of the senior and middle management teams that they're, A, they probably don't know these these techniques exist, mm. right? B, they're probably trapped in a, a mindset, a model of a leadership model that they've uh, maybe adopted uh, intuitively through what we call intuitive modeling. Mm. Intuitive modeling is, for instance, the way in which we model language as children. Mm. If I said to you, where did you learn English? No idea. Wow, yeah. but you intuitively modelled it from your siblings, from your peers, from your parents, right? C- can intuitively modelling be used on anything in terms of learning? Yeah, of course it can, yeah. So you've got intuitive and you've got conscious, right? Where, okay, let's go and learn German together. Okay, so that's it's conscious. a different process, yeah, conscious, right? So basically, in the, most people adopt their leadership mindset and behaviours probably intuitively where they model the leadership culture of their organisation. Or of their sector. Okay, so so if somebody comes into an organisation, let's say it's a big organisation yeah. and they don't have much management style, yeah. they're going to intuitively pick up not a very good method of working. They're going to intuitively good... carry that into your business. Wow, that's just blown my mind. So if you were to recruit someone from a different business yeah. that let's say hasn't got a very good reputation and dis- has disengaged Correct. members of team, you would employ them into your team yeah. and they would be disengaged when they joined. They'd struggle to fit into your your leadership culture. Wow. Yeah. Okay. So, but the, the, the danger with that is we wrote a book, or I wrote a book, a book of months called The Butterfly Effect about, mm. um, uh, and, and in The Butterfly Effect is based on the metaphor. It's to do with the neuro-linguistic programming for change leaders, right? Mm. So um, the principle of the book is this, is that, you can affect a leadership culture in an organization simply as one leader in that organization, right? Mm. Choosing with conscious awareness to adopt a different leadership style. Mm. And there is a possibility by you changing your behavioral states, your thinking states, your emotional states, the way you think about yourself as a leader, if you actually affect genuine follower leadership dynamics, mm-hmm. then other people are going to start to model your leadership style. Right. Now that works for the positive and the negative. Mm-hmm. So if you've got somebody who brings a leadership style that let's say is a participative leadership style, consultative, maybe a coaching leadership style, maybe a conscious leadership style, then you've you've you you've you know you've you hit the jackpot there, haven't you? Yeah. You've got an excellent archetype for your business. Yeah. But yeah. you've got to be able to recognize that yeah. in that person. Yeah. And the problem is 
do they recognise it as a general rule? And I don't think they do. And then it's because it's a lack of education. The second thing is, if you get someone who has an anti-conscious leadership mindset, right? So they don't give fish and stretch. They're not open to leadership development. They mm-hmm. use hierarchy and command and control. It's management by exception. They're yeah. they're getting involved in what you do when there's a problem. They're not interested in building rapport. You're just a, a resource. That's an extreme version. But how uncommon is that? I think it's more common than yeah, the, other, right? the other. So based on antidotal evidence from friend, family, mm-hmm. peers, it doesn't appear to be that uncommon. Mm-hmm. Now, if you don't recognize what that is, then that's the rotten apple in the barrel, right? Mm-hmm. So we know what one rotten apple can do to a thousand apples in a barrel. Yeah, and that that's exactly the next question I was going to ask is, what is your opinion on leadership when it comes to... I'm going to try and use the most PC yeah. term here. Uh, cults or let's say Donald Trump. Because people are well, following... Donald Trump? Well, people are... I, I don't really understand it. People are yeah. following... If it's Donald Trump we're talking about... It's yeah, Donald yeah, Trump, I'll talk about Donald Trump. Yeah. He, he, um, he's probably going to jail. Why do you think people are following him? Okay, so I often find with managers that I'm dealing with or even students of management, but say we're working with MBAs, MBA students, who tend to be, you know, had a few more years in management, so to speak, is that... Uh, People are curious about why someone like Donald Trump appears to have the influence and support that he appears to have. Hmm. Um, And usually they're not actually that curious about why they have the support. The curiosity is more of a a critique, a kind of like turning up your nose or holding your nose. Like they don't like him. Hmm. It's more about a judgmental mindset than an openness to understand, right? Mm. And so what we say is in response to that as a trainer, for example, I would say to him, look, what you should really be doing here, right, is not judging the guy, right? Mm. But looking at him and asking yourself a question, how is it that this individual became the leader within the most competitive industry in America, which is the real estate industry, Mm. and became massively successful and got to the very pinnacle of that industry and then flipped and moved into the media and ended up with one of the top selling shows in the world Mm. and became a very, very senior producer and executive within that industry Mm. and then flipped it again and got to the very top of politics and became the most powerful person in the world. Three different industries and he's climbed to the top of all three of them. So the answer to that question is he's doing something because it's not an accident, right? And if you really want to understand leadership, you need to understand how he's doing it. Mm. But if you're critical of him because you don't like the cut of the man's clothes, then that's going to get in the way of you really understanding how he's doing it. And that's what's important. Yeah, I agree to an extent. I think that he, Donald Trump, inherited... Um, roughly what his net worth is today. Did he? So a lot of his net worth, I know that he's saying he's a billionaire. Yeah. He's, he's going to court and he's probably going to go to jail. Probably. Because he's not. Yeah. I, I, I don't, I think that what he did with the media is he said the things that nobody else would say. Correct. And I think that got him so much public scrutiny 
but also a lot Support. of people agree. About, yeah, because he was Harrison. He was pacing a certain group within America. Mm. So pacing is a classic salesman's technique, right? So it's where um, I align myself with your beliefs, your values, your subjective views of the world. I don't necessarily have to agree with them, mm. but I project them back onto you. So he was pacing a critical block of vote voters. Mm. I mean, the reason he got voted into power is because the majority of Americans saw that man as a leader. Mm. I think he... but. The interesting thing about him is that most politicians are so grey. There's no, there's no black and whites. There's no right or wrongs. Yeah. It's oh maybe, maybe, maybe. Yeah. Whereas he came along, and I remember he was interviewed uh, about the war that was going on in Ukraine and Russia, yeah. and he stopped the interviewer and he said, "I want to stop people dying. Yeah. I do not care about anything else." Yeah. And nobody else would have said that bar him. Yeah. Yeah. And actually, a lot of people can get on board with that yeah. because. Yeah. It's not that the Russians are bad, it's that the Russians yeah. are being told to do something. Yeah. And it's not that the Ukrainians are bad, they're being told to do something. And also from your own background, you would recognise that he was probably a pioneer as a politician in using yeah. social media. I mean, what he did yeah. with Twitter was unbelievable. And I, I just want to put a caveat in this podcast, right? Mm. This is super important to me, all right? I don't necessarily admire this character, yeah, right? Yeah. And I don't necessarily think that he's a force for good in the world, right? Mm. What I do recognize, though, is that the ability to influence people is what leadership is all about. Yeah. And he has that ability. There is no question about that. So the question is, and I haven't studied him enough, mm. how is he doing it? And we should be we should be studying that. Do you think that he's maybe, do you think, uh, and you've not studied him, but... Not, not enough, no. Do you think that it's maybe because he's so polarising that people kind of respect that he's so open? Well, if you take the word polarised for a minute here, right, mm. it, it cannot, you could say polarising has a negative context to it, right? Mm. But he can only have a polarised block of support if the people relate to what he's saying, mm. right? Yeah. He's able to influence them because he's playing out a narrative that they're playing out every day in their houses. Mm. That's what he's doing. Mm. If you go back to... Uh, not to do a comparison with Donald Trump, but if you go back to uh, Adolf Hitler, it mm. was the same thing. He got to power in Germany because a critical mass of the German people at that time um, identified with mm. his narrative. Mm. And he knew that, right? And I think what, what Donald Trump was doing is something that politicians always thought they were always good at. But what I think the rest of them have lost is they've lost that frank candidness to mm. see it how they see it right mm. uh, regardless of how it's going to land and I think that Donald Trump has tapped into a technique or a strategy for influencing that the others are just not up to speed on yeah yeah it's, he's an interesting figure he's, he's definitely yeah uh, maybe polarizing isn't the right word. However, he's a controversial. So well, I think say. it is the right word. I, my yeah. my view of it, it is the right word, but polarizing does mean I think when you mean by it, it's putting people into two different camps. Yes. Yeah, but they are already in two different camps. Yeah, that's his reality. Yeah. What he's done, he he's recognized that broadly speaking, in his country, it's split. There are two different camps. There's two different versions of America in the mindsets of two polarized groups. I in, think. Yeah, in terms of leadership, when we're on the to, uh, yeah. topic of leadership and uh, you know getting to presidency and yeah. all this kind of stuff, 
when somebody's younger and they're an, uh, let's say they're an entrepreneur or they're within business or management yeah what do you think are the mistakes that they make when leading a team if i could go back in a time machine and mm. visit my 24 year old self and if you were my boss knowing what i know now i'd say please put me on a coaching program really yeah put me on a coaching program let me learn to be a coach within your business and that you can be much more confident that you're going to have a very engaged asset on your hands and also a much more effective team leader and someone who's perfectly capable of taking a part of your business through time and becoming an executive leader and uh, get them when they're young yeah get them when they're, they're they're impressionable but also keen to learn and let them see this other body of knowledge and techniques that they can use within the workplace that's that's what that's 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 how i'd answer that question that's a really that's a brilliant take because i've actually heard and i can't, I can't remember where i've heard it but i don't take credit for it at all mm. somebody asked someone very successful how do you succeed in your business at such a young age and he went well it's quite easy there's older people that have done all the work for me yeah i just hire them for a few days and learn wow and that's it yeah and, and it was so you know it hit home to me i thought i'm struggling with marketing why don't i talk to somebody that's done it before yeah, I, I, I agree with that. And I, I think I think mm. people of my generation, right, if I was to go back into management as an occupation, mm. then, and, and if you said to me, what's the ideal role for you, David, within our team? I wouldn't want to be your MD. I wouldn't want that, right? I wouldn't want to be a chief exec. Mm. I wouldn't want to be a director. I'd like to be a, a mentor mm. to your management talent. I'd like to be their awakener, their guide, their trainer, they're heading up your coaching division. I think that older, more mature heads have got a hell of a lot to offer in that dynamic. And that actually fits really nicely with a lot of indigenous cultures mm. where the, the older warriors or the older practitioners then become teachers and guides mm. and awakeners and mentors. And I think we'd like to see more of that. I think there's a massive... Uh, tranche of the labour market out there today that if it was redirected into that type of work could be awesome yeah and allow allow generation x and generation y to take a grip of the world yeah and i think from speaking to you you definitely are that awakener that you're talking about i think that from the um conversation we've had so far yeah you do allow her allow a a deeper level of thinking within business and within leadership um and i think that thinking on again from from my point of view you're so right in terms of the older heads have so much to offer yeah. in their specific area yeah but i think what people need to remember is that times do change Correct. And, and for example let's say you have a ceo of a business that's uh, 75 years old yeah brilliant brain yeah and they uh, they were amazing at selling they'll be the master at selling yeah however they might not understand social media marketing yeah because it's a young man's game. correct um so it's finding the right person it's finding the right person you have to have a, you, so you need a transition mm. right so that again it's all about if you take someone who's in their 50s and i'm not being ageist here but let's say somebody in their 50s mm. and they're moving towards in their minds maybe slowing down maybe looking towards some form of semi-retirement or, or retirement right mm. the question is how do you if you want to keep them on in kind of mentoring coaching 
tight roles, right? Um, even on a freelance basis, you might have a freelance contract with them, reinvent the idea of the work relationship with them. Um, how do you prepare them for that role? And you still have to think about the characteristics of a conscious leadership mindset mm. and say, do they have that or do they have the foundations of being open to grabbing it? Mm. And you need to have that filtering process. There was a quote that I heard from uh, Stephen Bartlett, who runs yeah. his own podcast. We, we both listened to yeah, his yeah. podcast. It's very cool. Um, and he said, what I often ask CEOs and, and managers is, are you driven or are you dragged? Yeah. And what he meant by that was, is there a shadow that you're running away from? Yeah. Or something traumatic in your past that's happened? Yeah. And you're dragging yourself to be successful? Yeah. Or are you genuinely motivated to achieve this thing? Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's into deep psychology there, isn't he? And I think yeah. that that's a really interesting yeah. uh, question and i yeah. was wondering what your kind of take on it was well i think our antecedents or history our previous timeline shape who we are today mm. i'm quite big on that therefore i recognize that um my leadership style i'll give you i'll give you an interesting example right if, well I, I find it interesting yeah. right is um i used to have quite a strong leadership style mm. um probably fairly uncompromising right very quick to be an advocate for a point of view. Mm. Um, quite a decisive character when I was in leadership, right? Uh, very strong on quality, right? Quite rigorous in mm. terms of expectations. Flip side, also kind of compassionate, right? Kind of caring, super optimistic about how people could grow and develop. But the two sides didn't seem to be compatible at times, right? Mm. So I was on a coaching program once. And they said, uh, what, what, how would you describe your leadership style, David? So I described all of that. And they said, where do you think that came from? Mm. And I said, what do you mean? <laughs> where did it come from? Mm. And he said, well, if you were to go back down your timeline, at which point in your life do you think you first adopted that leadership mindset, those qualities? Mm -hmm. And I realized that I was modeling my dad, mm. that my leadership style was my father. Everything I admired in him and saw in him, I had inculcated into me. And then what I was doing is my expectancy in other leaders was that. Yeah. And if you had a different leadership style to, to that, then I was quite critical, which made me yeah. quite difficult to get along with because yeah. people sensed I was judging them. Mm. And that coaching day transformed my life because I realized that that leadership style was great for him and his generation. Remember the world he came from, right? But uh, I didn't need to be like that. And that mm. gave me a lot more what we call in coaching behavioral flexibility. I realized that I could adopt different types of leadership styles. Mm. I just needed different role models. That's uh, opened my eyes a little bit, just yeah. thinking, thinking about especially when I was a little bit younger, how my management style used to be. It was very reflective of what <laughs> I was taught by my dad. And I think that I definitely took his traits and adopted yeah. them for mine. Yeah. I don't think maybe that's the case anymore, but the, the only reason that it's maybe not the case anymore is that I'm in a field that he doesn't really understand. Yeah, yeah. So I kind of need to make my own way. Yeah. Because I can't be guided. Yeah. That's... Uh, 
that's kind of blown my mind yeah. that actually yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's interesting so yeah. you know you know the thing going back to your, your question about mentoring i think it's really interesting if you take a, a a more established manager reach a stage in their life where they're looking for maybe an exit but they could be of value to your business mm-hmm. as a mentor trainer type thing and uh, I saw a quote on LinkedIn. I, ca- I can't remember for the love of me the, the the author, but it was something like this: Watch out the kind of mentors that you get. Right? There are some mentors who see it as an opportunity to inculcate other people with the leadership mindset that has served them throughout their lives. Mm. That's not a mentor, yeah. right? That's a very selfish thing to do. Mm-hmm. A mentor has to be um, a genuine curiosity and a genuine desire to help somebody become a version of themselves. It could be quite different to your leadership style, but what works for them works for the team and works for the organization. The mentoring is is about sharing experiences that mm. can help that person as a resource, not about programming them to be a version of you. And I believe that. And that's transformational leadership. That's transformational. So when we, we get to transactional, uh, transactional leadership yeah. versus transformational yeah firstly uh, for, for the people maybe listening what do you think the specific differences are and how would you go away from transactional and begin being more transformational right so i've thought about this for a long time <laughs> okay first of all transactional leadership trans- transformational leadership have, have been around for a good few decades right okay? mm. as models so the first thing is transactional leadership is that if you go back to something like maslow's hierarchy of needs right what do mm. we need right we need a shelter we need food we need provisions we need so we need resources so we need cash right mm. so we need to go to work right so when I turn up at work, let's say at the business school and they ask me to deliver a training course or something or where I was yesterday. Mm-hmm. I mean, as Tony Robbins says, I, I don't do it because I have to do it. I do it because I get the chance to do it. Yeah. Right. It really turns yeah. me on. and I like it. Right. Yeah. The flip side to that, of course, is I, I, I believe I'm well paid for doing it as well. Right. Mm-hmm. Would I go and do it for nothing? I would probably do it pro bono within the community if mm-hmm. there was the right opportunity. I would do that for nothing. And my reward is engaging with a, a purpose or a commitment to something that, that I think is really worthwhile. Mm-hmm. But generally people, generally speaking, most people don't sell the labor for nothing, right? Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. you sell your labor for a price. So the transactional element, I pay you a wage or you pay me a wage. You give me a company car, you maybe give me share dividends, depending on what I'm involved in. Mm-hmm. And in return, you give me sick pay, you give me holiday pay, you give me maternity pay and all the rest of it. And in return for that, you expect me to follow your guidance mm-hmm. and to um, uh, accept your instructions within cultural norma- normality mm-hmm. and be a good employee. Am I right? Yeah. Well, that's the fundamental basis of the leadership relationship. So if you say that leadership is about influence, there's the basis of all influence within the workplace. Mm-hmm. You go along with that. Yeah. So transactional leadership uh, isn't a bad thing. Mm. However, if if it's a transactional leadership base and there's no real rapport, mm-hmm. there's a lack of psychological safety, that people don't feel that you have an interest in their growth or their development, they're just a means to an end, then you could call that an impoverished transactional leadership culture. Mm. Impoverished in the sense of lack and rapport. 
when you've got that type of culture in your organization, you've potentially got a big problem, mm. right? If you have a transactional base where people think they're getting fairly well paid, and here's the interesting thing about being fairly well paid, if you're getting paid enough, you don't think about it. Mm. Yeah. Does yeah. that make sense? Yeah. It's when you're not getting paid enough, you become aware of it, mm. right? So if you're getting paid enough relative to your peers, relative to your occupation, then that should be fine, right? If you've got security of employment, that that's a big help, right? Mm. But then if you've got a boss like Harrison, who has a kind of conscious leadership style, coaching style, leadership style, and really wants to build rapport with you mm. and everything else that we've been talking about today, then you have an enriching transactional leadership culture. Now, when the organization is just sort of jogging along, right, and everything's been fairly good in the past, and it's kind of just jogging along in the, in the present towards its future, mm-hmm. we know that that's a perfectly reasonable leadership culture to have. You're going to achieve expecta- expectations, right? Expected outcomes are going to come in. But if you suddenly find yourself in a wind tunnel of change, right, mm-hmm. okay, where your business idea and your business culture has been really tested, and the future is really, really becoming progressively uncertain, Mm. then that leadership culture is not enough. You then need to accelerate up into the the world of transformational leadership. Mm -hmm. And the model that Bass and Avolio developed in 1990, which everybody, leadership theorists would be familiar with, is called the additive effect, Mm. right? And it's a lovely model, and this is based on the four eyes, right? So what he says is transformational leadership must have a foundation of good quality transactional leadership mm-hmm. an enriching base but you need people in your organization that are sources of leadership of sources of motivation at a higher level mm-hmm. a higher level so either if i remember correctly inspirational motivation and what i think they mean by that is one of the eyes is the manager's manager the soldier's soldier the uh, podcasters, podcaster. Does that mm. make sense? Yeah. Raymond Bartlett's of the world, right? Yeah. So who do you see as your role model? Inspirational motivation. Mm. So that means within your occupational culture, you need leaders that are representing the very best in their class mm. to be role models if they're going to inspire people. Then you might have intellectual stimulation, right? Mm-hmm. So business schools, for example, do you have leaders in the business school that intellectually inspire you hmm. to go to greater lengths of research or engagement? Or if you work at Bayer, right, are you employing PhD researchers who are inspired intellectually by their executive leaders to do, do great things in the world? Then the other one is idolized influence, mm-hmm. um, which is uh, actually, I've, I've kind of flipped that. In, idolized influence is more of the role model. Mm-hmm. Inspirational leadership, I got them around the wrong way, I do apologize. Right. Inspirational leadership is to do with your backstory. Mm-hmm. So if you take someone like Barack Obama, right? Barack Obama's backstory with his mum and his dad coming from a fairly poor background, etc. It's a really inspiring story. Mm-hmm. If you take someone like Oprah Winfrey, it's a really inspiring story. Steve Jobs, it is an inspiring story. It's like, they have went through their own hero's journey. So that can be a source of inspiration for you. Even Stephen Bartlett's story, it's Mm -hmm. utterly inspiring, right? Mm -hmm. And then the last one, and I'll get this one right, it's individualized consideration. Do you feel that your leaders care about you? Mm -hmm. 
Do they have your best interests at heart? So what these scholars are saying is that these sources of inspiration uh, have to be available in parts or, do you know what I mean? If you want to inspire people to go beyond expectations, to really stretch themselves and to help help your organization make that leap into something very different in the future. Yeah. And that's a long-winded answer, but that's 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 the answer. No, it makes sense, and I think that I'm definitely I'm going to be dissecting that when I go through this podcast for yeah. sure, even in more detail, because I think that it is such a good thing to strive towards. Yeah, and also to understand what management style do I have right now? Is it inspirational, or you know, just what type is it? And 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 maneuvering that into what you want it to be. Um, yeah, I think I think you're doing the right thing. If you take uh, um, individualized consideration, mm. I mean, how difficult would it be for you to tap into your natural um, identity as a carer? I, I think it'd be quite easy for me. Yeah, so do I. That's yeah. why I'm asking the question, right? So, so you've already got that internal identity and that natural inclination to caring about people, right? Mm. Which can be balanced with a pragmatic edge as a manager and a leader right mm. so you could you take the acronym of rapport mm. and and take the four elements of the conscious leadership framework that we adopt and with purpose awareness seek to maintain psychological safety in your teams mm. to build respect attentiveness potential trust yeah. respect and if you do that then the likelihood is that the men and women that work for you are going to respond in a very favorable and productive way. So therefore, post facto, you're providing a source of uh, individualized consideration, which is one of the key elements of a transformational leadership mix. Let's say you're in a management role and you're disengaged. You're not quite actively yeah. disengaged, but you're, you're listening to this and thinking, I don't really like you know what I'm doing and my team aren't following me. For some reason, whatever reason it is, they don't respect me. How would you begin? What are the kind? Of, what's the kind of advice that you could give to begin that flip of going from dis- a disengaged leader, a manager, to beginning to uh, to to back to an engaged leader, which your team are following? I think it's a really hard thing to do. If people lose respect for you hmm. for some reason, it's really difficult to get that back, assuming that you even had it. Mm-hmm. It's difficult to do it. If you, However, if you have a commitment from the management team that the management team wants to change a culture because they feel that the staff don't respect the existing leadership style, mm-hmm. and if you're prepared to go through a transformational journey as a group, to adopt a different model of leadership style, then you have some chance of flipping disrespect into respect, mm-hmm. right? Um, however, it's a tough journey. Mm. It's a tough journey. It takes years. Yeah, it can take years, but you've got to ask yourself, how many years do you want your business to be alive for Mm. right do you do you want a business that's going to be generating shareholder wealth for your grandchildren Mm. do you want a business that's going to be sustaining employment within the community for another 30 or 40 years 
So what's three years? Investing in your leadership culture uh, to create a different leadership archetype, um, which can create a more engaged workforce. So when you say it takes years, yeah, but relative to the bigger picture, it's nothing. How would someone lose respect in a management role? Do you think that having not having the nous to call out somebody when they've done something wrong in a building way is maybe where that lack of respect comes in? Because you're allowing people to get away with something that maybe they shouldn't be getting away with. Yeah, I, I, I don't think... Let's go back to conscious leadership for a minute, right? Mm. I think you can adopt a conscious leadership model and mindset and behavioral state mm. and still... Um, confront poor performance mm. but you confront it with um the techniques that we explored earlier on in the podcast mm -hmm. the, in fact you articulated it to me i mean i was sitting listening to you thinking wow i need to be able to see it that way in one of my training programs you know <laughs> so this idea of calling them out but doing it in a nice way and saying look mm. you know you and i both know it's not working it, it's not good enough and i'm really curious to try and understand mm. um why why we're in this situation and I'm really interested in understanding your perspective mm. as as you pointed out earlier I think you'd be amazed the effect that can have on people so I if however mm. you're not challenged because that is a challenge yeah yeah, yeah it's just yeah. a different way of doing it right yeah right if however the real issue is that your managers don't feel psychologically safe themselves mm. in making the challenge they lack the confidence. Well, that's a different training need. So what happens if your manager is, let's say, conflict averse and can't physically bring themselves to, to call out on something that is done wrong? So there's a lovely saying in coaching that people are not their behaviors. Mm. I love that, right? And what that basically means is that uh, our behaviours are projections of our thoughts and of our beliefs and of our, and of our values. So they're social constructions, right? Mm -hmm. And usually we've learnt them from somewhere. And I used to, um, I had, I did some research once with an organisation that prided itself on the fact that it didn't get involved in confrontation with mm. staff. And actually the, the hallmark of being a really good manager was somebody who got along well with everybody. And Conversely, what that also developed was a challenge in challenging poor performance. Mm -hmm. Because if you engaged in that type of interpersonal dynamics, there was a danger that you might be labeled as not being an effective manager, yeah. right? So we can borrow from anthropology to understand it. So rather than just looking at the individual, the case that you're talking about, you could ask yourself a question, how shared is that attitude throughout this organization? How common is it, right? Mm. Now, if it's an, an isolated case, it's just one person, the chances are that maybe their upbringing or their previous work experience, if they came from another organisation, has has taught them to behave that way. Mm. But the chances are it could be broader than just the individual. And when I was doing my PhD, I looked at the work of an anthropologist called Morris Opler, who did a lot of work with the, the Native Americans. I think it was the Chiricahua Apache, if I remember correctly. And he came out with this idea of cultural theme analysis, which uh, I don't know if it was Morris's idea or he picked up from previous anthropologists, mm. but it's a brilliant idea. 
and then a cultural theme is defined, if if I can recall it correctly, as a, I think it's a postulate or a position or an attitude that's implicitly or explicitly advanced within a cultural group. That's a lot to remember, right? Okay, <laughs> right. But basically, what it means is that um, it could be that conflict avoidance mm. is somehow or other culturally normative within the broader culture of the organisation, mm. and if that is the case then what you've got in your hands is a systematic change, a cultural change, where you're going to have to get the senior management team to sit and say, right, we need to understand through research how ingrained this actually is in our culture. And also to say to ourselves, you know, what is the positive intention behind that cultural theme? What benefit have we had from it in the past? Mm. Do we get any benefit from it just now? And if, if not... And where we're going in the future, mm. what type of performance management culture are we really trying to develop here? These are bigger questions. Yeah. So that's how I would respond to that. Do you think it would come from above? So let's say, yeah, yeah it always comes from above. Absolutely. Fish rots from the head, my friend. Oh, that's a great saying. I think that came for the Sicilians. That's a great saying. Fish yeah. rots from yeah. the head. That is phenomenal. I'm going to use that. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So at the end of the day, I'm a big, big believer in this. You can take your PhDs, that's... your MBAs, your yeah. lifetime in management, distill it all down. It comes to this. If you want to change a leadership culture or a service culture, yeah. the leaders in that organization have to be role models for that change. As Gandhi said, and I'm paraphrasing Gandhi here, yeah. you know, to be the change you want to see in the world. I mean, that's what this is all about. Mm. One of the biggest flaws in cultural change projects when it comes to leadership or service standards or leadership standards or teamwork and standards is um, do, the, do, do the managers in the organization walk the talk, talk and walk? Do they, do, mm. Are they models and are they day-to-day -day archetypes for the culture that you want to see in your business? That's, that's fascinating. And on a, on a sort of closing note, yeah. I, I don't want to close, but I think we'll have to because yeah. you'll need to get home. But yeah. you mentioned before emotional contagions. Yeah, yeah. And I was very sort of invested in that idea can yeah. you explain that are you a football fan more rugby oh you're a rugby fan well, that's good that's good so uh, obviously i'm assuming it's scotland yes all right do you like going to <laughs> do you ever go to glasgow warriors yeah, i've been once or twice have yeah. you ever been to ulster versus glasgow i've not oh you no. should right yeah okay have you ever noticed the way uh have you ever here's a good example hmm. do you love watching the hacker yeah right i love the hacker <laughs> Yeah. I use the video of the hacker in my training programs, right? Yeah. Because they are exemplars of emotional contagions. Mm. So as you know, the hacker is uh, a, a ritual dance, if you like, mm. that, that Maori people from New Zealand, I think they're Maori from New Zealand, are, are inculcated into from, from children. Mm. And, and the idea is to create an emotional state in the team, let's call it a warrior state, mm. that prepares them to go into battle and win that rugby match. And we'll see if they win the World Cup, right? I think they will. I think they might as well, right? <laughs> you know, England's got a tough job with, uh, I think it's it's uh, is it South Africa. Yeah. Right. So so basically, an emotional contagion is this. Mm. Um, it's, it's a group of people catching the emotional states of each other, so they all become at one in their emotional state. Mm. And then you'll notice with a hacker something amazing happens in the audience and the spectators. They start capturing the energy and mm. they start playing back the energy to the, the All Blacks as players. Have you mm. noticed that? Yeah. And then that just creates this 
fantastic field of energy, emotional energy, that enables them to go and do their stuff. So mm. let's just bring it back to the land of day-to-day -day management, right? Yeah. If I'm your manager, I'm your line, I'm your, I'm your, uh, your leader supposed mm. to be. And this is the interesting thing about managers. Managers are expected to provide leadership, but they <laughs> often don't, right? So, and we're going to have a team meeting about a change program. Mm. And I come into the meeting and I'm late and I'm looking flustered, and I'm a bit agitated, um, and I don't have control of my papers, how do you start feeling? Anxious. Anxious. So you start catching it, don't you? Mm. Okay. Let's take a different side of it. So we come in the morning, and I'm, I come in, and I say, hi, everybody, how are you all doing? And I take my time, take my jacket off, loosen my tie, go and make myself a cup of coffee. So you don't mind if I just make a wee coffee? And then I sit down, and I lean back, and say, so what are we going to talk about? How do you feel? Very relaxed. Right, okay. Now, I've seen the two different sides of leadership presence, management presence. Mm -hmm. Emotional contagions. I think Elaine Hatfield's done a lot of work in this area. It's such a powerful idea mm -hmm. because it, it can make or break a business. And as you said, fish rots from the head. Fish rots from the head. So it all comes from above. It all comes from good and bad. So if you have let's say a, a regional manager, let's say yeah. above the managers, a regional yeah. manager that comes into meetings flustered, uh, doesn't really know what he was going to talk about, yep. clearly hasn't prepared. Yep. That then trickles down into your management and into Big your time. teams below. Also, what that individual is doing is sending out a signal that it's okay to be in this state. This is normal. Mm. That's interesting. And therefore other people adopt it. Yeah. Now, don't get me wrong. We can all miss our bus. The car can break down. Mm. You know, the guy or the girl probably has a real positive intention. They don't want to let the team down. There's always background circumstance, but if that type of thing becomes culturally, uh, almost like part of the cultural DNA of the business, where mm. people go into a kind of crash state, borrowing from the world of NLP again, where they're kind of contracted, emotionally reactive, they're hurting, maybe feeling separate from people, mm. and, and all this emotional energy is just leaking out of them. That, that can't be good for the leadership culture. No, not at all. No. Not at all. And I think, David, just on a, on a final note, you use the word awakening yeah. and awakener. Love that word. And I think that you yourself are, in terms of cultural change, and leadership are an awakener thank you um, and i just want to thank you so much for coming on it's been honestly i would love to sit here for hours just picking yeah. your brain but it's been amazing so thank you so much well thank you very much and i'll share something with you my purpose as a, as a trainer and as an educator is to be an awakener so mm -hmm. i'm really really blessed with that validation yeah. and going back to your sister my job in that classroom was to awaken in her and the other uh, students in that room that absolutely anything is possible for them mm. so if they can see it uh they can be it to borrow from arnold no. and, I, I, and i see it in you know I, i've been serious because one of the first things and i think this is very prevalent amongst brilliant leaders and i saw it in grant wilson who we did a podcast with ceo of iwc watches instead of just talking about what what was say we were doing a podcast grant's first response was what do you want to achieve from the podcast it wasn't what am i going to achieve and you said exactly the same thing. And it's that flip that makes a really great leader. It's right. what do you want to achieve and how do our values align? Yeah. And it comes back to what we started, started yeah, with yeah. in the podcast. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I think that that is you to a T. So honestly, thank you. thank you so much for coming on. No, welcome, man. Thank you. Thank you. And, and the bold man over there. <laughs>